Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 16. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint Church, and it's a pleasure to be worshiping with you and proclaiming the truth of God from his word. Wow, what a long passage. And uh, it was intentional, that long passage. If in the original context, these, this letter that Paul wrote to the, to the house churches in Rome, we don't know exactly their situation, but we're assuming there was probably four to we don't know how many local house churches there that were interconnected, and we know that Paul had never been there, but Paul knew some of the people who had, had moved back to Rome after uh, Jews, Jew, people of Jewish origin were dispersed, and, and he, they moved back, and Paul sends this letter, and it was meant to be read out loud in the congregation, the whole thing. So can you imagine being the first audience to hear it? And hear them declare that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And to hear that Paul addressing the, the issues that they were probably struggling with, the cultural issues about Jews and Gentiles and God's plan and God's favor. And we read a section today that's part of a larger section. And we'll, this is a two-part sermon series covering um, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 3. And in, in many ways, this is a difficult passage for us as modern people to hear. Um, I spent a lot of time writing this this week, and I wrote this eloquent sermon, and I thought it was good and really prepared. And then I had a Microsoft Word crisis, and somehow I did a cut and paste, Dropbox something, and I, in my cut and paste, instead of moving it to a new document and saving some stuff for next week, I deleted everything. I did some recovery software, I found the document, but then the recovery software lets you look at it, but then it doesn't let you, you have to buy the software to actually see the full thing. I thought I found it, bought the software, and it was the song sheet for the worship outside. Then I found another document, and I found that one, and that was the, the scripture passage we read today, and I never found my cut and paste. So I rewrote the sermon last night, and, 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 but it's good. I had to, it was forced to deal with this text again. I've read this text many times in my life, and I think God, every time I read it, God speaks to me again. So this is the second revisit, uh, and I'm, I'm going to proclaim what God taught me as I read it. And this morning, we're, we're going to, I'm just going to look at four questions about the human condition that I believe this passage addresses, and four questions about the human situation. The first one, Roman number one, what is the problem? The second one, what, who is part of the problem? The third one, what is God's response to the problem? And the fourth one is, what is our proper response as followers of Jesus to the problem? So 
Roman number one, point number. Question one, what is the problem? And before I answer this, I need to answer the question, is there even a problem? Because for modern people, some people say, hey, there's not a problem. Or they, they're, what, what they think is the problem is what different than we as Christians, as followers of Christ, see as the problem. But for, about, for over 3,000 years, philosophers and religious leaders and religious people have been asking these questions. From Confucius and Lao Tzu on one side of the world in China to Plato and Aristotle on the other side of the world, miles and miles away, mountain ranges, you know, continents away, people have been asking questions. Why are we here? What's the source? Who is the creator? Why does evil exist? Are people basically good? Are people basically bad? And it's interesting, if you look about between about 600 years before Christ and about to about the time of Christ, people were really asking these questions, like philosophers in every culture. And it's amazing that Jesus comes when he comes, and John says, in the beginning was the Logos. And John answers the question that they're all asking, that it's in Jesus, what they've been looking for. Little fun fact, I was an international student in China many years ago, and we had to pick a Chinese name. So I picked a Chinese name that's a combination of Confucius and Lao Tzu, and uh, makes people laugh when they hear it. It'd be the equivalent of like, if someone came here and got an English name, and their English name was like, you know, Isaac Newton Einstein or something, or Abraham Lincoln Washington. But I, I did it because I really was intrigued by the pursuit I had known about the Greek pursuit, the Greco-Roman pursuit of knowledge before Christ. And in school, I'd been taught about Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and their pursuit for this, this creation, the source and ethics. But I didn't realize that cultures throughout the world were also pursuing the same thing. And they're asking these questions. What's the source? Why are we here? Is there a creator? Why does evil exist? Are people basically good or people basically bad? And the Bible addresses all of these and answers them throughout. And Romans chapter 1 through 11 is one of the places where we get answers. We get really clear answers that, about how God's covenant faithfulness in the Old Testament, you know, to Adam, from Adam to Noah to Abraham and Sarah to Moses to David through the prophets, it's all fulfilled in Jesus. So Romans 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11 is for us, followers of Jesus, God's covenant people. It's for us to, to, to get some of the answers. It's not the only place we get answers, but it's a good summary of a lot of the answers. But to those outside of the church, they'll most likely disagree with parts or all of Paul's assessments of the human condition and the human problem and even the solution to the problem. But we stand firm on God's word and we'll let it renew our minds, as it says in chapter 12. Of Romans and as disciples of Jesus, we're going to let this word transform us. And every time you read it, many of us in Waypoint Church have read Romans multiple times. But I promise you, each time you read this, God's word is going to speak to you again and going to give you new and fresh insight on how the good news of Jesus is transforming us and changing us. So, what's the problem? The problem is we rebelled against God and humanity is broken. The creation is broken. The problem is rebellion, and it manifests itself as sin. Let's look at Romans 1, 28 through 32. I'm going to reread what we just read. It says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind 
so they so that they do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding of fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they do... They do they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's the human condition, according to Paul. And if you argue against that, I challenge you to read the newspaper, check out a history book. I just this week was praying through this sermon, and there's a lot of stuff going on online about this TV show on Netflix, and just thinking about sexual abuse. Um, and, and violence, and the stats are staggering. Just the stats in North Carolina and America. Of, I, I'm not, there are children at home, and, and there were children in the outside service, so I'm not going to go into all the details. Normally, we have a, a separate service for the kids, but the evil is there, and everything Paul talks about here exists in our culture today. It, it, you can't deny that the evil is there. Some theologians like to equate our condition to like a tree, that looks decent. You look at the tree and you're like, wow, that's a big, nice tree. It provides shade. But the roots are dying and inside its core, it's rotting away. And one day it's just going to fall over. That's our, that's our human condition. We need, we're, we're, we're a tree that looks okay, but we're rotten to the core. War, violence, evil. Thousands and thousands of years, this has been who we are. When I was a youth pastor, Many of the youth would ask me the question, is humanity really that bad? And I would often go to this one analogy that, that just came to me one day. I'd say, imagine if you built this awesome computer, but then you also created some software, and then the software you created actually started destroying the computer. I didn't know that's true, but software can make the fan run or whatever. It can ruin if you got a virus. Like, what if the software, I said, what if the software destroys the computer? And I'd ask them, what would you do? And they'd say, of course, we'd destroy the corrupt software and start over. To which I would say, so isn't God justified in destroying humanity and starting over? Look at how evil we are. Look at how evil we've been for thousands of years. We don't deserve the good creator's kindness. We deserve destruction. Then oftentimes, even they'd ponder that and they'd be like, okay, you're right. But then I'd hear, they'd come back with this response. But I'm not that bad. That's the evil people. That's not me. And I think this is a common view in our culture. Uh, but it also exists inside the church. It's the idea that I'm not that bad. So God should be happy to have me. Almost like they were saying, the world is bad and there are bad people out there, but I am no way a part of the problem. And this view really can only exist in post-enlightenment individualistic cultures like we have here in the U.S., um, which is a new idea in world history. Because in most cultures, if there's a major problem with some of the people, it's a problem for everyone. And everyone's pays the consequences of the problem. 
Everybody's responsible. And for some reason, we think we're not part of the problem. So who is part of the problem? Just the evil people, like, like is implied in our culture? Paul predicted that moral and religious people might have objections to his proclamation in Romans uh, 1, 18-32. So the first part of chapter 2, he kind of answers their questions. The, Paul uses rhetorical arguments and questions in some of his letters, but in most of his letters, he's engaging with the church. Like, he talks to them, they have problems, he's addressing their issues, it's kind of a back and forth. In Rome, he's, it's more like he's predicting what they're going to say after he asks the question. So there's, many, there's a series of these answers and rhetorical questions of Paul's asking throughout, you know, his chapter, especially chapters 1 through 7, but even, even through 11. And this is one of those times where Paul predicts what they're going to ask. And he predicted that the moral and the religious people would object to the statement about how bad we really are. So Paul says this. You, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And there's a, a theologian from the 20th century. He died maybe 10 years ago. A well-known uh, theologian. His name was Francis Schaeffer. He you know, really did a lot of great things for Christian thought. And Schaeffer came up with this analogy, the tape recorder analogy. Now we don't use tape recorders. So you could, for you young folks, you could think of it as Alexa or Siri. Something recording you. Something that every time you talk would record you. So when he says tape recorder... Just imagine something that could record everything you do. And they, they make a joke. They say that our phone's recording everything we're saying anyway, the government or, or whoever. But listen, listen to Schaefer's um, illustration. If every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung around its neck, and if this tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments with which this child, as he grew, bound other men, the moral precepts might be much lower than the biblical law, but they would still be moral judgments. Eventually, each person comes to that great moment when he stands before God as judge. Suppose, then, that God simply touched the record, tape recorder button, and each man heard played back on his own all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years. We are a people who like to talk, and we like to tell people what to do. Thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other men. Not aesthetic judgments, but moral judgments. Then God, simply, then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in the light of your own moral judgments? The Bible points out that every voice would be stilled. All men would have to acknowledge that they, deliber that they have deliberately done these things, done those things, which they knew to be wrong, nobody could deny it. We are all part of the problem. Like the software, we all deserve destruction. We can't even live up to our own standards. We're all part of the problem. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, The line between good and evil not, runs not between us and them, but right down the middle of each of us. We have no excuse. We are all guilty. We are all part of the problem. 
But there's good news because God did something about it. So what's God's response to the problem? At this point, some of you probably noticed that I skipped a couple major themes of the section. Uh, I skipped wrath. <laughs> I skipped general revelation, the idea that God reveals himself through creation and, and we all have some kind of law and are written in us. Um, and I also kind of skipped over how Paul addresses the distortion of God's best for human sexuality. I will speak on God's anger against uh, evil, his wrath, and his righteous judgment next week. And I'm going to send some commentaries out on the realm, along with this sermon when it goes out on the realm, about general and special revelation in Romans chapter 1, so that you can uh, you know, read about that. And then with kids in the audience and just the complexities of, of, of what Paul talks about, about sexuality and, and how we've, we've become less human in sexuality and we don't trust God and we've gone our own way. And in verses particularly 24 to 27 of chapter 1, I'm going to send a really good commentary that will help all of us process it. And I challenge you to read it and to ponder over it. And it's a, it's a commentary written in our current context. So even to give us some language where we could talk to others. Because those outside the church are not going to accept the biblical view of sexuality. The world has created their own views. And some people are like, oh no, the world is so terrible, it's all, what's going to happen? And to that, know that God is working. The sexual problems that we have today, they all existed in Corinth. They all existed in Ephesus. The people there were finding new ways to sin, as Paul says earlier in the chapter. So, God will give us what we need. We can follow him and trust him, but it's hard. And, and I want you guys, I want us all to, to think about our sexual ethics and, and to read this article and, and really think what would it mean for us as Christians to, to live in, in wholeness, going back to the way we are created in our two, true humanity. So I won't say anything more here. We will talk about this more and there will be some other opportunities for us to share about this. So back to question three. So what is God's response to the problem? His response is going back to his covenant faithfulness, the covenants he, he makes to Adam and Eve and the covenants he makes with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and, and the, the prophets. You know, what he told them would happen. It's the gospel. It's the good news. And if you look at Romans, the section right before this, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, and then the section right after it, uh, Romans chapter 3, 21 to, to 30, you see Jesus. You see Paul starts with the gospel and he gives us this section about why we deserve judgment and then he goes back to the gospel. The good news is that Jesus came. The big plan was fulfilled. The covenant faithfulness of God. That's the good news. That Jesus is reigning right now. He's at the right hand of the Father and he's coming back to make all things new. That's the good news. But for this morning, I want us to focus on what God did and what God's doing. And I want us to focus on a specific attribute of God found in this passage. His kindness, his tolerance, and his patience toward rebellious people. I don't want us to miss this in this passage because there's so much other stuff. In verse 4, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. 
In the New Living Translation, it says it like this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And I believe this teaching goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the garden when Adam and Eve rebel against God and he, God finds them. God goes to them and he clothes them. He kills an animal to clothe them. He, something else dies so that they, he doesn't, that yes, they, they get death, but they get a way. He says he's going to provide a way for salvation for them. But death won't be final. And then in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, after there's a renewal of the covenant, the people have already disobeyed, the tablets were broken, there's new tablets, the law is given to the people. Moses is coming down from the mountain and it says this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord, proclaimed his name Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And you see, the kindness of God is there right when he, they get the covenant and they're renewing this, this covenant and preparing to be God's people. And it talks about his compassion and his graciousness and he's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And even maintains this to those who are obedient for thousands, for long periods of time. Yes, for those who are disobedient, he will punish the children and their children. And in that punishment, the goal is the repentance. As they go their own way, they can come back to God. The punishment even has an element to bring them back. Because God is patient and he wants them to come back. In Romans 11, we will read later in the book, in the, in the letter, that, that God is kind, but he's also severe in his judgments. And there's a time for his judgments. But I want us to reflect on why does Paul here say, focus on his kindness and his patience and his forbearance. I'm reminded of 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, where at the end of Peter's life, he's, his, he says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then in 1 Timothy, another letter that Paul wrote later in his life, to encourage a young pastor. He says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. God is patient. God wants us to come to him. He set up a way for us, him to do that. In giving himself as Jesus Christ, we see the good news. We see the God in perfect timing comes and, and to save his people. But we see his patience. We see his, 
his kindness. And I don't want us to forget. I don't want us to think of God. Yes, God is wrath. God is angry at evil. And that's a good thing. When you see evil, you should be angry too. When I read those statistics about child sexual abuse, I was angry. And God is angry about that. At the same time, some way, somehow, God is, in his patience, he's allowing people to continue on and doing what they think is right. And, and in that process, some way, this mystery that we can't fully comprehend, he's bringing people back to himself and he's giving time for patience. And we all know, we all wonder, we all stray. If you think about a child, even the best kids struggle. Even the best kids wander and go their own way. We all do. We all want to follow our own rules. We'll tell other people what to do, but then we won't follow it. And, and thank God for his kindness and his patience. So let's, yeah, I want us to think about the big picture of the gospel. That's what God's done. But in that, I don't want us to forget, don't want us to miss the kindness, the patience, and the forbearance of God. The tolerance of God to give us time to come back to him, to repent. So what is our proper response? I've identified the problem and who's the problem, what the problem is and who's the part of the problem and why we're the part of the problem. And I talked about God's faithfulness and kindness and his response, but what is our proper response? And I want to look at three things. Repentance, declaration, and persistence. Repentance. Again, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, says this about repentance. This term means a change of mind, specifically a change of mind about sin. It refers to a change which comes over a sinner when he sees his wrongdoing no longer as attractive but worthy of judgment. He turns away from it. This means abandoning the security of the old way. I love this. Sin is us finding something other than God and God's best for us and finding, thinking that's better, grasping it, seizing for it, not abandoning it, but going for it and saying, this thing is better than what God has for me. God's the creator. God made everything. He knows everything. But I'm going to choose. This thing looks more attractive. But repentance is turning away and abandoning the security of these other things. Continuing on in the quote, God's demand for repentance is a demand that we trust him, even though it means forsaking our human securities. In the New Testament, repentance is not simply negative. It means turning to a new life in Jesus Christ, a life of active service to God. It should not be confused with remorse, which is a deep sorrow for sin, but lacks the positive note in repentance. In this... This attitude, we see God's goodness is leading people to him. And that's what, we, that's what we cling to. In Mark, the beginning of Mark, it says this is the good news about Jesus. And then it talks about John the Baptist coming to prepare the way. And then it says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come. This is the first thing Jesus declares for his public ministry. He said, The kingdom of God is near. 
repent and believe the good news. And he's like, literally, when he says the kingdom of God's near, he's saying the good news is right in front of you. It's here. It's at hand. Everything that the Jews had hoped for and everything, all cultures. I mentioned earlier that every single culture was searching for this answer. In John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And that's the answer. Jesus Christ, the Word, the thing, the source, the creation. This is the good news. Repent and believe it. And for us, if if you're out there and and you, you don't know Jesus, this is the good news. Jesus Christ died for you. God made a plan. God is, the world is broken. I hope, if you're recognizing the brokenness of the world and you're like, there's got to be more. There is more. Turn to Jesus. God in his perfect plan has, he, God came down 2,000 years ago and died and rose again so that we could be free. And he has a new plan for this creation. He has a new plan for all of us to be a part of that. Accept his forgiveness. Repent and turn to him. But for those of us who are Christians, who already have accepted Christ, is repentance a one-time deal and we just forget about it? What would it mean? What is, is there a sanctifying repentance? Is there something about in our sanctification that we're called to continue to think about repentance and think about turning back to God? And you might have heard this before. A lot of people like to say the term, is, is the good news, is the gospel still good news for you? It's something that's transforming us all the time. Yes, it was a one-time transaction. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Christ died and rose again, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will consummate all things. But reflecting on that good news is something that we need to do continually. And part of that is reflecting on the fact of the kindness of God, the patience of God, and the repentance and the, and the, the idea of repentance. Turning back to God. Two beautiful gifts we have, and they're intertwined, as the church. One is confession. We confess our sins to one another. We confess our sins to God. Not because we haven't already been forgiven, but like Chris said in, in that video, like if we hide it in our hearts, we're going to keep drifting from what God has for us. But as we confess, as we bring it to the light, there's freedom. We need to live in that freedom. Confession is a gift. And in confession, once a month and, or twice a month here at Waypoint, when we were meeting in person, we, we do communion, the Lord's Supper. And we come and we bring to God and we say, God, we need you. I need your grace. I need to turn from these idols. I need to breathe out the junk and breathe in your spirit and breathe in you. Eat, literally eat you, eat your flesh and drink the blood in the reminder of the sacrifice you made for me and the reminder of the the good news is here, and I need to turn back. The second thing that I really feel like as I read through this passage is the idea of declaration. In Acts uh, 20, verse 21, Paul is speaking to the, the elders at Ephesus, and he says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And I was thinking about this. Paul doesn't use the word directly declaration in, in this Romans passage, but he does allude to it throughout his, his letters and even later in Romans. 
But part of understanding the repentance and part of understanding the kindness of God is how do we declare that to others? I think a lot of times this Romans passage has been used wrongly. And it, the idea of the wrath and the anger is for, is for those religious people to reflect on the fact that they, they need God, whether before their salvation or even during salvation, when we think that God needs us more than, you know. But I, I think sometimes we take that, this passage and we forget about the kindness of God and we forget that the declaration should line up our declaration of the gospel should line up with God's declaration of the gospel and how he presents it in the New Testament. And when we declare the good news of Jesus, there has to be an acknowledgement of sin and rebellion against God and an action of repentance. But as our culture shifts to what is now called a post-Christian culture, we need to rethink how we share about sin and repentance and in light of God's plan to save people. What is the pattern that he's presented, and what, how does he talk to Jews? How does Paul address Jews in, the, in Acts and in the letters? How does he address the Gentiles as he's bringing them to the knowledge of Christ? And as I've been processing this, and at Waypoint's been thinking a lot about how to love our neighbor, how to share the good news in, a, in this post-Christian culture. And I believe every person's on a journey and we don't know if we're the first believer to meet them on that journey. And we're just, just being kind to them. And just breaking down things that they've heard that Christians are mean and bad and angry. I don't know. Like, who knows? But, or maybe we're meeting them on the middle of the journey. And they're, they're beginning to realize their brokenness and look at the brokenness in the world. Or maybe we're meeting them at the end of their journey where they're, they, they've tried, they've gone their own way like this Romans passage talks about. And they're like, the world is broken. There's got to be more. Is Jesus true? And we meet them at that point, and it's, it's the kindness of God. And we're going to, they acknowledge, so, so what's our purpose in this? How can we trust God and, and, and say, okay, God, how are people dealing with sin and, and dealing with the brokenness and, and, and seeing that, wow, as bad as we are, God doesn't destroy us, that he sent Jesus, and he provided a way so that we could be free. I, I don't have all the answers, but I know at Waypoint we really care about loving the triangle and reaching the triangle and sharing the good news. And, and I, I think that this needs to be part of the conversation. And I, I think the kindness of God, it doesn't say that the acknowledgement of the judgment and the wrath leads us to repentance. It says that the kindness, his kindness leads us to repentance. So Somehow the acknowledgement of the judgment and the wrath bring us to the point where we're like, I can't save myself. And then we look at the kindness of God. So I'm not saying I have all of the solutions. I'm just identifying what the passage says. And I, wanna, I want us all to think about how do we declare the good news in light of this? In light of, yes, the judgment is real, but also the kindness of God is what leads us to repent. And how do, how do we navigate that as we love people? and point them toward the hope found only in Christ. And the final thing this morning is, is persistence. At the, in verse 7, it says, Those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, will, he will give eternal life. And I think this is interesting, because it doesn't say, to those who believe in the gospel of Jesus, he will give them eternal life. Now, I believe that that's true, but why does Paul 
talk about persistence and doing good. And I think part of the answer comes in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the good works and the persistence is we've been saved. But there's something about this repentance and this living out the Christian life where we need to persist and we need to keep turning back to God. And God is going to be with us in this. Whether it's how you live your life, whether it's how you share, persist. Persist in the gospel. This is a two-part sermon, so I'm going to cover more next week. But let's remember this. There is a problem. The problem is us. The problem is sin. And we're part of the problem, but there's a solution. There's good news. And God is kind, and God is patient, and God is benevolent, and God is tolerant toward us in this. Let us be a people of repentance. Let us be a people who declare properly the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And let us be persistent to pursue him and do the good works he's prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for your faithfulness. You are good. We are not. But we can have new life and hope in you. And we can make sense of the brokenness and the evil. And we can see that you're doing things. Yes, there's still mysteries. Yes, there's still things we don't fully understand. But God, we know that you love us and you called us and you're going to see us through. And we thank you for your kindness. And I pray that we turn to you. And when we, when we feel distracted and sin is tempting, God, we, we repent and we turn back to you, God. And we, you fill us with your grace. And we're reminded of the good news that saved us. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.